0: This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. To show you uh, maps of certain areas in the world, they probably wouldn't mean much to you. Even if I were to put just pins on just random or even specific places on those maps, they probably still wouldn't mean much to you. For example, what was this on? Could um, you switch? Here is A map of Kentucky. It's a little bit hard to see, but it's a map of Kentucky. I just screenshotted uh, Google Maps. And for most of you, right, this map, could we actually shut those doors maybe, the outside ones and the inside ones? Uh, Too much light coming in. So here's a map of Kentucky. And um, for most of you, this map doesn't carry any significance, does it? (laughs) Um, When you look at this, a picture of Kentucky, not a lot of significance. And I could put pins all over this map of Kentucky, marking specific places that I've been to, places where events in my life have occurred, and those specific places would carry some meaning for me. But it probably still wouldn't carry much meaning for you. All right, um, here's another picture. This is a map of Midland, Michigan. And my guess is it doesn't carry much meaning for most of y'all. Uh, for my wife, I know it does. Uh, it's where she grew up. I can see the tridge there, uh, which she used to hang out at. Um, it's uh, This is the area where Christy and I got married. Uh, there are specific places that she's invested with meaning there. And it's interesting, isn't it, how we humans... Uh, invest places with meaning i mean i find it utterly fascinating um, that two of us could both go to the same exact place at the same exact time and for one of us that place could hold so much meaning and significance and for the other person it could hold no meaning and no significance That's because one of us assigns more meaning to it than the other person. But what's so interesting to me um, is that is how we assign meaning to places and how we don't assign meaning to places. Think about a childhood home of yours. If it's still standing and you could return there, it might have some meaning for you, good or bad, that it just doesn't have for everyone else in the room. Or think about a graveyard. You know, you could walk up to a certain gravesite or a headstone of a loved one in that graveyard and be at that very spot, that very location, and it could carry tremendous significance for you, whereas for me, it could carry none. You see, we humans invest places with meaning. We're in the habit of doing that. We invest some places, actually, with sacred value while for other locations, we see in them little or no value. Uh, Pearl Harbor, for instance, just right down the street, gets way more attention from tourists and locals than the little park in the middle of our neighborhood. Why? Because we have invested Pearl Harbor with significance, meaning, importance, value. In the 1940s, a man named Harold Samuel coined a phrase that most all of us know, location, location, location. Real estate agents know the importance of the right location for a client. If they don't, they're not a good realtor. The better the location is a fit for a client, the more likely a purchase is. Some clients want an ocean view. Uh, Some want a farmhouse tucked away in the hills. Some want a city high rise. Some want a place in close proximity to everywhere they need to go. Location, 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 or place, 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 or space, space, space. Now, why am I harping on all this? Because one of the key reading principles that we need to have on lock as we progress in studying Mark's gospel is this. Location is everything. Like us... Mark and those living in his day invested certain places with meaning. And every single time that Mark tells a part of his story, it happens somewhere. (laughs) It happens in some place. And each place carried with its significance for Mark and for Mark's ancient audiences. So here's a rule that I challenge you to have in place every time that you read or study Mark's gospel. The very first question should be, all right, I'm going to read, where is this taking place? Like, what is the location? Okay, Mark's dramatic story contains a lot of episodes, and each of those episodes occurs in a place. If we're not asking, where is this taking place? Then guess what? We're going to miss some really important stuff. Likely, something very, very, very important. So here's what I want to do as we get going today. I want, I want to introduce you to a larger area where Mark's story is situated. The place where Mark's story is happening, all right? And as we move throughout this study, like for weeks and months from now, I'm going to be showing you lots of maps, Really, uh, maps of just the, the same place over and over and over. Some zoomed in, some zoomed out. And hopefully, what's going to happen over the course of this study of Mark, you're going to get really, really familiar with these places. What we often call the Holy Land, right? In fact, if you're interested, maybe at some point in the future, a group of us could go to the Holy Land. I've been. It's pretty amazing. All right, so um, if you're interested in that, talk to me about it. But here's the first map. All right? This is from Google Maps. I just did a bunch of screenshots, all right? The air, This area that you're looking at right here, what you see is what in ancient times would have been called Palestine, all right? It's that whole area right there, Palestine essentially. And with regard to Mark's gospel, this is where everything happens. And every time something happens, it happens in a place. And when something happened in a place ancient folks like Mark assigned those places meaning. Or in many cases, those places already had meaning. They already had meaning that Mark and others knew about. And so for us, all of us in this room right now, we're thousands of years removed, right? We have to dig and do our homework to find out what the significances of, significances of those places were. Like somebody could just show up here and be like, know nothing about Pearl Harbor, and it would contain no significance for them. They would have to do some research about it. (laughs) And a lot of people do, like they know about Pearl Harbor, but they don't know a lot about it. That's why when you go there, they give a tour and give you a bunch of information, right? We have to do that kind of work when we're studying the scriptures. That's what I spend most of my week doing, right? And when we do that, we level up, (laughs) location 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 is everything yeah all right hopefully you're on board with that here's the second map all right this again it's just from google maps it's the same map except I drew on it okay and what i want you to pay attention to here are the three seas the three bodies of water in this area and going forward here's how i want you to think of palestine Okay. In the north of Palestine, we have the Sea of Galilee. It's that little circle right there up at the top. All right. To the east, we have nothing. That's just wilderness, nobody of water anyway. And then in the south, you see that bigger circle. That's the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on planet Earth. Okay. Uh, and I want you to hold that fact in mind. And then to the west, You can see uh, part, only part of, in this screenshot, the Mediterranean Sea. So if you hold these three seas in mind, it'll help you kind of get your bearings as to where we're at with regard to things happening in Mark's story, all right? So remember these three seas, north, nothing east, south, and then west, Most of Jesus' time in Mark's gospel is going to be spent in that North Sea, that little tiny circle called the Sea of Galilee. All right, Mark's Mark's story has almost everything happening in that area. All right, we aren't going to focus on the Sea of Galilee quite yet. We'll get there uh, in the next few weeks. But I do want to take you north. So right down at the bottom of your screen there, that circle is the Sea of Galilee. We're going to go up north just a little bit of it. So here's the next map. And at the, the sort of center right at the top, you see Mount Hermon. I got a rectangle around it. I'm not going to talk a lot about that today, Mount Hermon. But that right there, here's why I'm bringing this up. That right there, Mount Hermon, is where the Jordan River starts. And what happens is you get snow melt from that and you have some springs there and they flow out and they create the Jordan River. And so a couple of points here. One, the Jordan River starts at Mount Hermon, and it marks the beginning of the Jordan River, right? Um, in fact, that Sea of Galilee that it's flowing into right there, that's really, um, it, so it's flowing south, right, in the Sea of Galilee. That, that Sea of Galilee is only 12 miles from top to bottom, right? It's only 12 miles long from its north end to its south end. And really, it's just a wide spot in the Jordan River is what it is. So the Jordan River starts at Mount Hermon, flows south into the Sea of Galilee, and flows out. All right? So we're going to zoom out again. Here's the next map. We're going to start at the top, right? You see Mount Hermon there with the rectangle. The Jordan River starts there, and it flows south through the Sea of Galilee, that wide spot in the river, the Jordan River. It flows out of the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River keeps going, and its end point is the Dead Sea. So Mount Hermon... The Jordan River starting point sits at like 9,200 feet above sea level. And I told you the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth, right? And, and so if we were to start at Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet above sea level, and follow the Jordan River all the way to the Dead Sea, we're going to be descending 9,200 feet. Or to put it differently, the water of the Jordan River from its starting point to its end point descends 9,200 feet. It's essentially flowing down through what's known as the Rift Valley. It flows for about 150 to 200 miles. So we're interested in starting with the Jordan River because, well, that's where Mark starts his story. But he starts at a specific point on the Jordan River. Here's our next map. And this place is described elsewhere in Scripture as Bethany beyond the Jordan. You can read that in John 1.28. It's called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And you can see I've got an arrow pointing to the area there. It's right above the Dead Sea. And there are a few reasons this specific place, location, would have been significant. And before we get to today's focal passage, we have to explore some of those reasons so we can understand The first reason the location of John's baptism at the Jordan River is important is because it's in a wilderness area. And because it's in a wilderness area, that means it's outside the city of Jerusalem. All right, here's our next map, which shows you the location of the old city of Jerusalem, which is where the temple was. Okay, remember, in Jewish thought, the temple was considered the center of the universe for Jews. It was the location of God's presence, His house. Now, this temple, or, sorry, now this temple is about 20 miles from where John is baptizing. From where John's at to get to the temple, it's all uphill or up mountain. The temple, it sits right on top of a mountain. That's why it's called the Temple Mount, okay? Now, this wilderness area where John's at isn't far from a place called Qumran. Qumran was the home of the Essenes. That's our word of the week, by the way, Essenes. The Essenes were a mystic Jewish sect that relocated from Jerusalem to the wilderness in Qumran in order to live lives of purity and spark the day of the Lord, inaugurate the day of the Lord. We'll read about them later in the Gospel of Mark. And if you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran is where they would have been found, or Qumran is where they were found, right? They were pinned by some of the Essenes. Here's a photo uh, giving you a look at that. Qumran's a very, very rugged wilderness area full of mountains, And in part of the mountain range, there's an extensive cave network. And it was in those caves where all these scrolls were found. They were written by members of that wilderness sect known as the Essenes. Now, it's not clear that John was part of that group. Some people suggest that he is, but I I don't know. It's not clear. There's not enough evidence. It's not clear that John was part of that group. He seems to have been doing his own thing but his way of living was actually very, very similar to theirs. And so they, like John, believed that the Jerusalem temple officials were corrupt. They had desecrated the temple. They longed for purity. And they believed that if they could just all be pure for one day, this would spark the day of the Lord, and God would come back to them. God would rescue them. God would enact justice. God would restore the temple, and God would set everything to rights. John's view was very similar to that. So he's out in the wilderness, engaging in ministry, hoping to spark off the day of the Lord, waiting for it to just jump off. And here's the second reason this location is important. Okay. What we're about to read tells us that people were making the 20 plus mile journey from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to come hear John. Some of them were heeding his message. Some were getting baptized. But some weren't, as we learn from the other Gospels. Who were the some who weren't? Well, according to Mark, especially later in the story, the religious and political officials were the ones who weren't. In other words, among the people coming to John, aren't just normal folk like us, but you have temple officials mixed in there, religious officials, political officials, Romans, and the like. John, he's drawing these large crowds. He's making noise. And it becomes very clear, very quick, what John is doing. He's starting a counter-temple movement. Just like the first two verses of Mark's gospel, these next several verses that we're going to read today are just bombshells. They're just explosive in Mark's world. You see, ritual washings, cleansings, supposed to happen at the temple in the city in jerusalem confession of sins were to happen at the temple repentance was to happen at the temple but john has come along and he said nope nope the temple is too corrupt it needs to go it needs a replacement and i'm offering you that replacement the temple is no longer the building full of corrupt leaders. The temple is now God's people, bigger than any building could ever be. And the officials, they're all hearing John talk about this, and John automatically gets this target on his back, and it's a huge target. Here's the third reason John's ministry location is so important. Although it's in the wilderness, it's in the territory of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was one of the sons of King Herod who was also known as Herod the Great. And his son, Herod Antipas, began ruling part of his father's territory when his father died. Other portions were given out or doled out to other sons. But the presence of the Herod family looms large in history at this time, as well as large in location at this time. You see, in fact, right there near the Dead Sea, you can see the Dead Sea in the background in this picture. On top of one of the cliffs... You see it right here. Herod, Antipas's dad, Herod the Great, had built a massive fortress called Masada. And I spent an entire day walking through Masada, which has some stunning views of the Dead Sea. But this fortress, uh, this fortress of Herod's is about 56 miles from where John was doing his ministry, so not too far. So where John is doing his ministry is in Herod territory is what I'm getting to you, specifically the territory of Herod Antipas. Here's our next map, an older one. And this shows us the territory of Herod Antipas. He's the Herod who's going to soon arrest John in a few verses in chapter 1. And in chapter 6, he's going to have John beheaded. We'll talk more about why in the future. But for now, you know that's coming. John's about to get arrested, and John's about to be murdered by Herod Antipas, in whose territory he's preaching. John's preaching there. And we're about to kind of read about what ultimately leads to his death. So here's the fourth reason John's ministry and baptizing location is so important. Throughout Scripture, especially in our Old Testament, and throughout early Jewish tradition, the Jordan River carried a lot of significance when the prophet Ezekiel writes about a renewed temple that he's longing for and that the people are longing for, Ezekiel actually says that the Jordan River, which again, it's 20 miles away from the temple. Ezekiel says that the Jordan River is flowing underneath this temple. He says that this Jordan River is actually full of life. It sounds like the temple's relocated. It sounds like the temple's changed, right, if the Jordan River is flowing under it or out of it. He says this river is full of life. It flows out into the nearby regions and everything it touches, it brings vitality. So perhaps John is thinking, ah, ah, if that's what Ezekiel says, that the new temple is going to have the Jordan underneath it, then perhaps I should go out by the Jordan. Let's start ministry there. And God's people will be the new temple. They will be the temple. The waters. Flowing beneath them will be life-giving and bring vitality. So let's go there. Let's go to the Jordan. But for Joshua, the Jordan River was also significant. You may or may not remember, but before Joshua, right? Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy, then you have Joshua. And before Joshua can lead the Israelites into the promised land, they had to cross the Jordan River. He gets the leaders of the Israelites, and he tells them, hey, grab the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's where God's presence is at at the time. There's no temple yet. So you get the Ark of the Covenant, which contains God's presence, and as soon as they step foot into the Jordan, just like this Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds in Exodus, the waters part, and they walk through to the other side. The waters dry up, and they walk through to the other side. They walk from the east bank of the Jordan to the west bank of the Jordan into the Promised Land. And when they do, when that happens... As they walk through those waters, they become a new people, a new creation, a new nation under God. It's an incredibly significant event. And this is where John begins his ministry, right there. We're going to talk more about that Joshua event next week, probably. And so you see, as readers of Scripture, thousands of years removed, we need to know the significance of these places before we start reading or as we're reading. We need to know the political significance of these places, the religious significance of these places, the theological significance of these places, the historical significance, and so on. And so we're going to be looking at the same geographical area on maps a lot in the coming weeks and months, as I said. And we need to get intimately familiar with this area. And so with all this in mind, all right, we're going to continue. We're going to turn to today's focal passage, Mark one three to six we get more than one verse today all right so one more thing all right um as we look at the text here in a moment what you're going to see is i've separated the scripture verses out as if they were a script like a drama script and so as we switch speakers uh in the story right what i want you to kind of imagine as we're switching speakers is that all of this is kind of taking place on a stage And Mark, he's kind of just off stage or off to the side of the stage of the narrator. But when he reads, we can kind of zoom in on him. And then when a new character speaks, we can pan the camera to the new character, right? And this makes it a little bit easier to sort of follow along with who is saying what. So here we go. Here's my translation of Mark uh, 1, 3 to 6. We start with Mark the narrator. He says, "'A voice of one shouting is in the wilderness.'" And then we pan to John, the baptizer on the stage, and he's saying, y'all make ready the way of the Lord. Straight away, y'all make paths for him. And it kind of like zooms out or zooms back to Mark, and then Mark, you hear him over the microphone say, this happens. John, the one baptizing in the wilderness, was also preaching a baptism of repentance on account of the forgiveness of sins. And they kept coming out to him all of the Judean region, even all the Jerusalemites. And they kept being baptized by him in the Jordan River while confessing their sins. And John was wearing camel hair and a leather belt around his waist and eating locust beans and honey. So we're just going to walk through these verses uh, quickly, briefly. All right, Mark 1.3 begins a new section in Mark's story. If I were sort of creating my own uh, scripture translation in print, I would keep verses 1 and 2 together as a, their own little section, and then I would start the next section with verse 3. On a language level, right, uh, it's super clear to me that Mark 1, 3 begins a new section. I could get into the nitty-gritty of Greek grammar today to prove that, but I'm not gonna. It's enough to just say here that there's a handful of indicators that there's a break in the story, which leads me to believe this is a new section. And John, he's brought squarely into focus. In one three, we're not told right away who this wilderness voice belongs to, so some suspense gets built for just a second. And there's also something else going on here. Last week, when we looked at Mark one two, I told you that Mark begins by speaking about Isaiah. Or Isaiah, right, right there in verse two. But in verse 2, he actually only deals with Exodus and Malachi. He doesn't actually deal with Isaiah in verse 2. Well, here in 1.3, he does. He actually has John the baptizer. He's not a Baptist, by the way. Uh, he's not a Presbyterian. He's not a Methodist. So we're going to call him John the baptizer, all right? Um, but he, John the baptizer is the one out in the wilderness, and as he's preaching, he's the one that cites Isaiah 40, verse 3. He's got Isaiah 40, verse 3 on his lips. So we're going to look at that, and as we do, I want you to check out the similarities between it and Mark 1, 3. So here's the translations. Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one shouting is in the wilderness. Y'all prepare the way of the Lord. Straight away, y'all make paths for our God. That's Isaiah 43. And then listen to Mark 1.3. A voice of one shouting is in the wilderness. Y'all make ready the way of the Lord. Straight away, y'all make paths for him. Just a minor change right there at the end. But you, you can see the similarities there, right? So whenever Mark, or any New Testament writer for that matter, embeds a passage from the Old Testament in their work, we need to understand that Old Testament passage in its context. And we need to understand how that context from the Old Testament transfers with the verse to the New Testament. And so, for example, all right, let me, let me just give you an example. In Isaiah verse, chapter 40 and beyond, here's the context. The Israelites, they're in exile in Babylon in Isaiah 40 and beyond. Babylon is later called Rome, by the way. So they're in pagan territory in exile. And they're even beginning to enjoy the luxuries of pagan Babylonian living. They've actually assimilated into that culture. But God, he raises up a prophet who stands up and tells the Israelites, time to get up, time to move, time to go back home, time for this exile and pagan living to be over, time to go through the wilderness way one more time and get back to Jerusalem, to rebuild our temple and take comfort in God. And so the context of Isaiah 43 is spoken, right? And it's one where the Israelites, they're on the verge of leaving exile and once again finding freedom and becoming a new nation and a new people with a new temple. And it's no accident, watch this, it's no accident that John's ministry is framed by Mark in such terms introducing John this way with Isaiah 40, verse 3 on his lips would have caught the attention of all the ancient listeners, right? They would have known the point. Ah, the moment with John right here at the Jordan is just like that moment back in Isaiah 43. Right now with John, the temple officials in Jerusalem and so many of God's people have adopted pagan ways of living. They've assimilated to Rome's culture. Babylon's culture, they have put themselves in exile again, as it were. But we are on the cusp of leaving exile again, on the cusp of getting back to our temple. But to get to the temple, to get to God's presence, we got to go through the wilderness first to get to the temple. And I can't stress this enough. The temple was the center of everything for first century Jews. It was the navel of the world for them, the center of the world. Life revolved around the temple. The seasons revolved around the temple, much like here, how everything revolves around the ocean as the ocean revolves around us. And here's the thing. In Mark, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, Jesus is the new temple. And as we shall see next week in particular, Jesus himself comes out into the wilderness to the Jordan. And just like the imagery in Ezekiel, he begins temple rebuilding there. Not a temple with stones, but a temple with people. He is the temple and he's grafting people into himself. A new exodus is happening. A new uh, way out of exile is happening. Release from exile has started and it begins here at the Jordan River with John and soon enough with Jesus it's a new temple movement but that also means this it's a counter temple movement to start a new temple movement is to counter the Jerusalem temple i i, I like have trouble conveying like how atomically explosive that is Here's something else. When you read the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, what you learn is that John the baptizer came from a very important family. His father, Zacharias, was a Levite. He actually served in the Jerusalem temple from time to time. John should have taken his father's name. He should have been Zacharias II. And John should have followed in his father's vocation or whatever footsteps. In other words, John the baptizer should have been, by cultural and religious standards of the time, named Zacharias II, and he should have grown up to serve in the temple. But that didn't happen. Instead, John went the opposite direction. He started a counter-temple movement. He didn't follow his dad's footsteps. We don't know exactly why. We can assume it's not because he didn't want to be like his dad. He did want to be like his dad. He seems to have the same hopes for the purity of God's people that his dad did. But it seems to me that John grew up seeing his dad serve the temple, give to the temple, love the temple, and cherish the temple, but also watch that temple leadership go corrupt. And over the years, as he saw it get more and more spoiled, he couldn't stomach it anymore. He came to despise it, and he relocated to the wilderness and rooted in the Old Testament scriptures, went to the Jordan looking for a new temple the renewal of God's people. And he was longing for that day of the Lord when God would return and make everything right, when he would mete out justice. He was watching for Elijah, the prophet who never died, because that was the signal that the day of the Lord had begun. And so it's important to understand here the location that John's in, as well as what John is saying, as well as what John is wearing and what John is eating. We know he's in the wilderness. By the way, I've I've heard so many rush to sort of spiritualize the wilderness. But the reality is, it's an actual place, actual land. It's an actual place on a map, actual place in the world. And for John to be preaching there, what he was preaching was incredibly bold. Again, it's what got him arrested and killed. So we shouldn't jump to like spiritualizing this and start saying things like, "Oh, the wilderness." It's not a desert, by the way. Or, we, but we shouldn't say things like, "Oh, the wilderness is a place of hardship and loneliness." And we all go through wildernesses. Right? I've heard that so many times. Don't do that. The fact of the matter is this. Here's one of the reasons why that's wrong. In Mark's story, the wilderness is actually a good place. It's actually a safe place. The wilderness is the place of Jesus, and it's the place that Jesus retreats to. It's a place to encounter God's presence. And so it isn't a place of sadness and loneliness and depression. No, it's the forming ground of God's people. It's the new locale of God's presence. It's where the gospel's preached. It's a special place. And notice what John is preaching. In verse 4, he's preaching a baptism of repentance on account of forgiveness of sins. I'm going to have more to say about this next week. We have to get this right to understand what's going on with Jesus' baptism. Have you ever wondered about that? Jesus' baptism? Have you ever asked, okay, if John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, dealing with the forgiveness of sins, then why did Jesus get baptized? He didn't sin, did he? Like, he didn't need forgiveness, did he? And if you want to know the full response to that, then come back next Sunday. Um, so for now, right, here are a couple of points to sort of whet your appetites. Um, one, when Jesus is baptized by John the John who started this counter-temple movement, it signals that Jesus has also joined the counter-temple movement. That's one of the points. The second is this. With Jesus' baptism, God is completing a pattern in Scripture that starts at the very, very beginning of Scripture. And it signals the creation of a new people, a new nation, and a new priesthood. More on that next week. But it's important on a side note here to keep John's baptism separate from Paul's baptism. The two different baptisms, two different things. If you go and read Acts, right? You read, uh, Paul encounters some people who had been baptized with John's baptism and he says, no, 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 no. Now you got to get baptized with this baptism. Or so Johannine or John's baptism is different than Pauline baptism. Okay, um, Pauline baptism uh it includes the forgiveness of sins, the initiation into the church, the body of Christ, and the indwelling of the Spirit. Right now what I want to do is I want to share with you a section from this ancient Jewish historian. His name was Josephus. Anybody ever heard of Josephus? Some of you have heard of Josephus. Josephus, he was Jewish, but he was he was prone to to being a puppet of Rome. And in his writings... Uh he would often spew Roman propaganda. And here's what he says in this work that he created called The Antiquities of the Jews. Look at this. He says, John was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise uh, virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and check this out, and to come to baptism for this washing of theirs would be acceptable if they used it, not in order for the putting away of sins, but for the purification of the body. Supposing that the soul, check this out, was thoroughly purified beforehand, that is, before the baptism, by righteousness. You see what's going on here. Josephus says that for John, one would repent before baptism. Okay? and you would become inwardly pure and inwardly righteous prior to the baptism. And then they would go into public and be baptized to prove that they had done that, had done the inward cleansing, repented, become pure and righteous. And so for John, who was starting this counter-temple movement, of movement standing squarely against the impure and corrupt Jerusalem temple officials, it all begins with purity. Purity. It all begins with righteousness and holiness. That's what he's longing for. You want to join John's side? You want to join John's movement? The one that Jesus joins? Then prove that you're inwardly pure and that you're inwardly righteous by coming out in public and being baptized. Here's another thing that's pretty explosive. When John is calling for this ritual washing, he's calling people away from the temple, one, to him, instead of to the priests, two. And three, to the wilderness, instead of the city temple. But four, for the first time, so far as I know in history, this ritual cleansing or washing is being done at the hands of another. You see, when you go to the temple to get ritually cleansed or washed, you do it yourself. You reach down into the water jar and you clean your hands, right? You can clean your feet, but in this instance, John is the one doing the act. And I think it's a prelude to Jesus. Here's how. John, I think, is making the point, until now, friends, we've all we've all brought purity and cleansing on by ourselves. And we've seen that doesn't work. We've tried. It doesn't work. We can't do it on our own. It won't last. So it's time to submit to the hands of another. True and lasting cleansing comes from beyond us and at the hands of another. So not only does this set the stage for Jesus, it says to the temple officials, y'all are done. No more need for y'all. And so Mark gives us this really great scene and they kept coming out to him. All the Judean region, even all the Jerusalemites, they kept being baptized by him in the Jordan River while confessing their sins. Lots are coming out to John, repenting, being baptized, confessing the sin, forging the way, right? And we've been talking about the way a lot lately. And I've said the way is the way to the wilderness, to God's presence there, to God's safety. But how is the way forged? By repentance. By repentance. Look again at Mark 1, three. Look at this. Y'all make ready the way of the Lord. Straight away, y'all make paths for him. This is the message of repentance right there. That's how Mark describes it. We could reword this. Look at this. Y'all get ready for the Lord. How? By repenting. Straight away, your repentance will make paths from you to him and him to you. You see. You see, the modern church has largely lost this. Today's church has often subscribed to this whole myth that Jesus has come to bless me. No, 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 no. No, Jesus didn't come to bless you. Your motto isn't what all the shirts around here say, hashtag the blessed life. No, Jesus didn't come to bless you. Jesus came to transform you to change you, to change me from glory to glory. And that starts with repentance. The starting blocks are repentance. And repentance can be grueling and difficult because it means taking a hard look at one's life and owning up and offering your life to him for change. But listen, for John, repentance didn't just happen on an individual level. He was wanting repentance on a nation level, a national level, a group level. And once everyone was pure in the nation, then the day of the Lord would start. It would take place. And there, and there may be time that we as a church family here need to repent have we gone astray? Have we gone off mission? Have we decentered Jesus? Have we forsaken our community? Have we embraced cultural lies and so on and so on? If so, we need to repent. And as little m messengers, lowercase m messengers, we, like John, should be living a life of repentance and sharing that with others, as uncomfortable as it may be. It's really an astounding image of John. He's portrayed as this messenger, this herald. Here's something really cool. And to many, right, when they would have heard this, it would have brought to mind the image of Caesar approaching a city or a town. And as Caesar, he's off in the distance, right? He would have his herald run ahead. And the herald, the messenger, would go into the city and he would be shouting in the city, Hey, everybody, Caesar's approaching. Caesar's coming. Caesar's approaching. Your king is on the way. Caesar, uh, Caesar's coming. Clear the streets, right? Make paths. Clear the way for your emperor. And now John, he's cast in the role of that herald for a new king. A new Caesar. A new emperor. Jesus anointed one son of God. John is coming along and declaring the same. Get ready. Jesus is approaching. Your king is on his way. Do what you have to to help clear his way and start with repentance. The day of the Lord is fast approaching. It leads right into six, our last verse for the day. And John was wearing camel hair and a leather belt around his waist and eating locust beans and honey. And so Mark describes John here just like the prophet Elijah. <laughs> and hopefully you get, kind of get the importance of that, right? Because in 2 Kings 1.8 and in Malachi 4.5, we get this description of Elijah, namely the part about his clothes. Right? Nowhere do we read in Scripture, by the way, about Elijah's diet. We never read about that anywhere in Scripture. But when you couple this with what we saw last week in Malachi four or five, it all starts to come together. John is cast in the role of the new Elijah for March drama for Jesus' story. He's casting the role of this new Elijah, the one whose appearance lets everyone know, hey, the day of the Lord, the day when God comes to set everything right has dawned. It has broken in. It has started. It's begun. That's precisely what's going on here. John is casting the drama as a new Elijah. And that means God is on the horizon. And of course, he is in Jesus, as Jesus. He is the new temple. He is the new high priest too. He is the new emperor, the new Caesar, the new king. The old temple system has no rule over our lives. The new temple, Jesus does. The empires of this world have no claim on us. The presidents, the kings, the queens, the politicians, the political parties do not get our allegiance. Jesus gets our allegiance. Isn't it just amazing? This verse, these verses is ooze. With meaning, And I hope today you're kind of getting a little bit of a feel for how explosive this all is, how explosive it would have all been in John's day. John's ministry is preaching his boldness. They were not just counter-temple, but counter-cultural. And I know it's a big sort of buzzword. It seems cool to say you're counter-cultural. Many think that being counter-cultural is being an activist and challenging the systems of the day. Some think it's being an anarchist. Some think it's rogue sexuality. Some think it's dressing goth. Some think it's being a vegan, uh, and so on. But for John, here's what true countercultural living consisted of. Embracing holiness and purity, especially in a context where everything around us promotes unholiness, impurity, and corruption. Placing repentance at the center of life an act which leads to purity and vitality, an act that's life-giving, calling for baptism at the hands of another, that is, in that act, admitting that none of us can cleanse or save ourselves, following the Spirit's lead as lowercase m messengers and pointing people to God the Son and God the Father via our holy living, in other words, doing God's will. That, friends, is truly radical living. A life subsumed by Christ, buried and hidden in Him. Live that out, and you're being countercultural in the truest sense. And I started this sermon out by talking about place, about location. I said location is everything. This was emphasized last week, too, in the sermon, Where Stay. And the answer was the same then as it is now. Our location should be in the shadows pointing to the Father and Son. Or to put it in a different way, hidden in Christ. Just as we sang about earlier, the first chorus of that song, Hidden We Were Singing, says, Now I am hidden. In the safety of your love, I trust your heart and your intentions. Trust you completely. I'm listening intently. You'll guide me through these many shadows. And that brings us to our bottom line. A life hidden in Christ is truly countercultural. Amen. Amen. Stand and let me bless you. If you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you go forth living. A life that embraces holiness. Placing repentance at the center. Living out your baptism. Following the lead of the Spirit. And doing the will of God. Living a truly countercultural life that's hidden in Christ. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.